Please stand for the reading of the word. Mark 8, starting with verse 34. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. The word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We're halfway through the Gospel of Mark, and at this point, Jesus turns to both the crowd and his disciples, and he invites them all in closer. There is now no inner circle who truly gets it. Jesus is talking both to the crowd and to his disciples and invites them to take another step. When we hear the word, we see the word disciple here, we see Jesus makes a distinction between his disciples and his followers. You see, being a disciple of Jesus may not mean the same thing as being a follower of Jesus. What can we see here? Well, as Jesus talks about it here, we could think of a disciple as being like a student. Many of you have, in fact, all of you have been students at one point or another. When you're a student, you're learning a, a body of information, a body of knowledge that you hope perhaps you might be employed someday, paid someday, to actually apply this information, right? Being a disciple, the word literally in Greek, a learner, is like being a student. These, these, these people have been students of Jesus. And now he invites them to take a further step, and we could see uh, the further step as being a follower, as being like an apprentice of Jesus. What does an apprentice do? An apprentice places themselves with an expert, a teacher, a master, and theirs is on-the-job training. It's on-the-job. You have to figure it out as you go. I did a unit of clinical pastoral education at at Loma Linda University several years ago, and it was amazing. I expected that we would go, and they would teach us how to be a chaplain, give us all the information, tell us what to do, what not to do, but instead, they threw us into the hospital wards visiting with people, and then we had to come back and say what we said and what we did, and then they would say, well, why did you say that? And why did you do that? And how did you think that? And we were completely, uh, like, drowning, as it were, but it was apprenticeship. It was on-the-job training, an experience of following, a new way of being. Jesus is calling his students to become apprentices, his disciples to become followers, and he doesn't leave anyone out. He invites the crowd to follow him too. And here's what Jesus says following him means. Number one, let them 
deny themselves. When we hear the word deny, it could be easy for us to think about hurting ourselves, beating ourselves up, not, being, not treating ourselves well, but this is not what Jesus is saying here, to deny yourself. I'd like to suggest that this is an invitation from Jesus instead to set ourselves aside. Set ourselves aside. I like Rick Warren's paraphrase of C.S. Lewis's words. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. You catch that? Jesus says, deny yourself, set yourself aside, think of yourself less. In the words of Christian theologian Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who lost his life at the hands of the Nazis, quote, to deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self, to see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is, quote, he leads the way, keep close to him. The practice of denying self is actually about taking our eyes off of ourselves and placing them firmly on Jesus. Denying ourselves, Jesus says, Followers must deny ourselves, and number two, take up their cross. Now, I have to admit, it's been easy for me to chuckle with a sense of superiority at those who have taken this verse literally. Have you seen someone walking down the street carrying a cross before? I have. Anybody else out there? Some of you nodding your head. You've seen people. Apparently, a lot of people have felt compelled to take this verse literally. Over the last 55 years, Arthur Blessett has carried the cross literally over 43,000 miles. Can you believe it? In 324 countries or island groups and territories. His wife, Dennis, drives ahead of him, and on the website they say, quote, we are just pilgrims, donkeys lifting up the cross and Jesus. Asai Burleson is a 38 uh, sorry, a 34-year-old father of four. He lives in South Carolina, and he felt called when he read this verse to carry the cross all the way from the East Coast to the Grand Canyon, leaving his family of four kids, feeling the desire to be with them, but feeling very impressed that he was called to take this literally. He tells one story of a woman driving by him and then stopping, cutting him off with tears running down her face and, and him saying, are you okay, what's wrong? And she's saying, I was one block away from killing myself until I saw you today. Roger Gates is a 72-year-old man who right now is in Colorado waiting for April or so when the weather gets a little better so he can camp along the way and planning to take that cross all the way to San Bernardino, California. I couldn't believe it. He's, he's raised $70,000 towards building a food distribution center in Oklahoma that would serve the local people but also people uh, in many different places. $70,000 he raised by walking with the cross across the country. It was easy for me to look down on people taking this, this verse, interpret it as a misapplication, a misinterpretation, a misunderstanding. It's easy for me to do that until I hear their stories and recognize that God can work in ways that are not orthodox and don't fit within my box or my bubble. 
Jesus likely meant that we should take these words very literally. Why, he was talking to people in the first century. He is on the road from Galilee to Jerusalem, and there is a cross in his future. Many of Mark's first listeners followed Jesus despite the threat of bodily harm. They saw crosses, they knew what crosses were, and they followed Jesus despite that threat. And we cannot forget that right now around the world, there are many followers of Jesus that are facing bodily threat because of their following of Jesus. The organization Open Doors USA serves persecuted Christians around the world, and they publish, every year they publish a watch list to show countries where Christians are facing extreme persecution and discrimination. They report last year that 5,898 people were killed for their Christian faith last year around the world. And this is the connections that they have through Open Door Ministries. 79% of them, those people were martyred in the country of Nigeria. The next highest percentage was 11% in the country of uh, Pakistan. These are real-life brothers and sisters, and as Pastor Ben was saying so beautifully uh, a minute ago, we have to see them as our brothers and our sisters that are facing threats, violence, attacks, discrimination, because simply of saying, I want to follow Jesus. The cross in Roman times was not just a tool of execution, but of public humiliation. Now, you and I, sitting here on this Sabbath morning, we may not be facing physical torture or the threat of death because of worshiping here today, worshiping Jesus Christ. That might not be what we're facing, but are we willing, are you and I willing to be embarrassed because of our faith in Jesus? Are we willing to be excluded because of our faith in Jesus? Are we willing to be on the outskirts, on the outside of the in crowd because of following in Jesus' way, because of listening to Jesus' words? Jesus said, those who want to be his followers must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. The word translated to follow here literally means to be on the same road. Jesus invites us to, be, to put ourselves aside, to be willing to face death and be on the same road with him in his way. And then Jesus offers a paradox. You know paradoxes where there's a statement that seems to be self-contradicting? Here's some examples. Oscar Wilde said, life is too important to be taken seriously. A paradox. George Orwell, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. Hmm? Or this one, parents might say to a child, don't go near the water until you've learned how to swim. Okay. We know what they mean, but it seems contradictory. It takes you a moment to, to think about it. And Jesus says this, the next thing Jesus says, Mark 8:35, for those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Those who want to lose their life, or those who want to save their life will lose it. The truth is 
sometimes our very efforts at self-preservation end up hurting ourselves. Perhaps you've heard of the parent who is very, very protective of their kids. No bad choices allowed in the vicinity, and then as soon as that parent is gone, that person is making all sorts of choices that they wouldn't, wouldn't approve of. They sheltered, they overprotected, they tried to preserve to the, to the point of harm. Or perhaps you've been in a place where you have guarded your heart so much that you're not letting other people in and then you end up feeling lonely or misunderstood. Or maybe um, you've had the experience where um, you're playing it safe at work um, and then you feel unsatisfied with what you're doing. My husband, Mike, started a book club uh, several years before we were married. And today, this afternoon, is the very first time we're meeting in person um, in the last two years or so. And I wanted to invite you all to come. So just let me know if you're coming. In fact, you don't even need to let me know. At 4 o'clock today, you can find my address in uh, the church photo directory, so you can surprise me. We'll be outside. We're starting a book. Or if you want to hear what books we're reading in the future, let me know, and we'll put you on our email list. But the book that we're, we're discussing today um, is Heather McGee's book, quote, um, that's called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Our efforts at self-preservation can end up hurting us. And this is what she says again and again and again as she gives example of how the fears of white people have led them, us, to support policies that are actually not in their self-interest. How is that? Well, here are just, just a few examples. So in the 1920s and 1930s, large public pools were springing up all across the country where thousands of people could come together and swim for very minimal fees, and it, they were uh, touted as symbols of democracy until integration in the 1950s. Communities fought to keep these pools segregated, and when they lost those battles, the white people started uh, leaving and the... And the Support for the pools, the financial support started going down, and these pools started falling into disrepair. And then everybody had to go to private pools, expensive things to be able to go swimming. In, Montgom in Montgomery, Alabama, um, McGee says, quote, the council actually decided to drain the pool rather than to share it with their black neighbors. So what was a pool that everyone could enjoy, now no one can enjoy. Today, people of all colors have to pay quite a bit to access a pool, and many do not have the opportunity to learn how to swim in our country today. I'm glad I looked up the city of Riverside, and I see we do have quite a few public pools in Riverside, and you can pay a fee. It's a little, a little expensive, but apparently Riverside has partnered with Kaiser to provide scholarships for swim passes at our, at our pools that we have here in Riverside. We're a church between two campuses, and I'm so grateful for that. La Sierra University has ranked number one in the nation for its diversity multiple times by the Wall Street Journal, and guess what? We're richer because of it. Unfortunately, since the 1980s, the rise of students of color in public universities has coincided with a backlash against funding for public universities. 
But guess what? Rising student death hurts white students too. Because the funding of public K through 12 schools is based on the wealth of local communities, parents who can afford it will pay over 70% more for houses that are near quote unquote good schools. So the price of housing goes up and everyone's trying to get in these neighborhoods where you have quote unquote good schools that have high testing. Too often this is tied subconsciously to race. In a study led by Professor Maria Kreisen from the University of Illinois, participants were shown identical neighborhoods in videos, some with black actors, some with white actors, some with a mixture of both. White participants rated racially mixed neighborhoods as significantly less desirable than all white neighborhoods. And the neighborhoods looked completely equal. And this is not in the 1950s. This is a recent study. So white students end up attending mostly white schools, but here's the irony. White students who attend diverse K through 12 schools get higher test scores than white students who attend predominantly white schools, particularly in math and science. At La Sierra Academy, again, our, our K through 12 school on the other side of, of, of the church is our Lost Year Academy is incredibly diverse. And guess what? We're all richer for it. It helps all students, whatever your background. Policies, historical policies that have prevented housing integration in our country have ended up hurting white people too. How is that? This was a fascinating study in the book, Rachel Morello Frost from the University of California, Berkeley, examined pollutants that are known carcinogens. So she's measuring in various cities um, pollutants in the air, carcinogens that cause cancer. She found that the most segregated cities in America had more of them in the air. Guess what, we all breathe the same air. Cities with more racial segregation had more pollutants and that's taking out poverty as a factor. So Jesus said, those who want to save their life will lose it. In other words, when we're focused on self-preservation for ourselves as individuals or for the community that we come from, we end up hurting ourselves. And then Jesus asked two questions. 8 verse 36, for what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? The King James Version uses soul uh, for these two verses and life in the previous two, but the Greek word in all four cases is the same. It's your suche or your psyche, the English uh, transliteration of that, from a verb that means to breathe. This includes your physical life, your breath, your life force, your essence, your spirit, the core of who you are. It turns out you can save your physical life but lose the essence of who you are. On the other hand, you can lose your physical life and you can stay true to that essence. Either way, I hate to tell you, but Jesus says it right here. Either way, your life is in danger. Either way. 
So if you stay true to the good news of Jesus and Jesus' way, you're in danger of misunderstanding and attack. But if you sell out, you are in danger of losing the most important part of who you are. Here's what Jesus says to us. What would you rather save? And this is not the end of the story. Jesus says in Mark 8, 38, those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now I have to tell you, I cringe when I hear Jesus using shame-based, fear-ridden language here in the text. I don't like it. But Jesus is connecting with a larger context and a larger history. The prophets Isaiah, Hosea, Jeremiah, the prophets warned that when we trust in ourselves or when we trust in false gods, we will be put to shame. The adulterous and sinful generation language that Jesus uses here was typical of many contemporary Jewish texts that spoke of an evil age followed by a new good one. When Jesus uses the language son of man, he's inviting the crowd to think of Daniel chapter seven where God's people are devoured by a monster. But then there's an ancient one that sets up court, destroys the aggressors, and then gives the son of man a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Jesus' warning here is a promise that the court of public opinion is not the highest court. Jesus' warning is a promise that one day the kingdoms of this world will no longer have the power to enslave and destroy. It may feel embarrassing to associate with Jesus' kingdom now, but Jesus' way will be vindicated. Rome's crucifixions will not go on forever. And get this, Jesus says, you won't have to wait too long to see it. Now, the chapter and verse markings in Scripture were put on many, many, many years later. Um, the original does not have chapters and verse markings, and many scholars now today connect the first verse of chapter 9 with the last verses of chapter 8. In chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. So scholars disagree on what's going on here. Did Jesus believe that his second coming was in the first century? Or that did the church believe that Jesus' second coming was in the first century and they just got it wrong? Or maybe Jesus is talking about some signs of the coming kingdom. Like the next verses are talking about the transfiguration where Jesus is shown in all of his glory to Peter, James, and John. And some say, well, that's what Jesus was talking about. Or some say the kingdom of God coming with power is actually talking about about Jesus defeating evil on the cross. Or maybe it's the appearances of Jesus after he's resurrected. I'd like to suggest that it's all of the above. How? Why? Well, we're still waiting for Jesus' second coming. But in the meantime, we have opportunities here and now to see that the kingdom of God has come with power. 
Have you seen the kingdom of God come with power? Have you seen it this week? I see it whenever truth and goodness win over hate and fear. I experienced it in a small way in my own, in my own journey this very week. Someone said something to me that made my heart heavy and hurt, and the enemy used those words to, to trigger feelings of insecurity and other things and forgetting my calling and what I'm, what I'm meant for. And a friend said, hey, no, that's a lie. Remember who you are. Remember your calling. And I experienced in that small moment this week the kingdom of God come with power. We've all been gripped by the news this week since Wednesday night. Today in the prayer, we prayed for all those impacted by the conflict in Ukraine. We've been watching with shock uh, this invasion that's happening, and we prayed for Pastor Vadim Dementiev and Julie and their family in our prayer this morning, and I got to speak with him. He used to be, for those of you who may not know Pastor Vadim, he was here at La Sierra, and now he's pastoring at San Marcos. And he expressed to me gratitude for all of our prayers uh, for their family in Ukraine and others. And I was struck by what he said. He said, the psychological trauma and panic is the most difficult part for people there in Ukraine right now, describing the first night of the invasion as feeling like 9-11 felt. For those of us who lived through 9-11 here in this country, that sense of uncertainty, what's happening, um, is how he felt. My heart broke as I watched the news with you and I saw children spending the night underground in the metro stations of Kiev. It's hard to imagine, hard to picture. To think of, of your kids um, being, being in that situation. The governments and kingdoms of this world are struggling right now with how to respond to this crisis. Yet, in the midst of fear and destruction, can we look, can we look for examples, for hints of the kingdom of God having come with power? I saw that in a story of Ukrainian soldiers helping injured Russian soldiers. I saw it um, in the story of people in Russia protesting the war at very risk of their lives of being arrested and fined. I saw it in people kneeling to pray in public squares in Ukraine, trusting in the kingdom of God despite all odds, betting on the kingdom of God despite terrible conflicts. But the truth is, in the world of imperial powers, we as disciples are not always brave enough to be followers. Jesus called his followers to deny themselves, but the very next time this word is used in the Gospel of Mark is on the night before the cross, and Jesus is telling his disciples that you are all going to fail. These are his words to Peter. Mark 14, verse 30, Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this day, this very night, before the, co the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter said vehemently, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of them said the same. 
They all run away. Peter follows Jesus to the palace of the high priest where he stands trial. But when one of the servant girls of the high priest identifies him as having been with Jesus, he says, quote, I do not know or understand what you're talking about. When someone else says that he's the one and Peter's afraid of the, of the, the growing conviction on the people there, Mark 14, 71 to 72, he says, he began to curse and he swore an oath, I do not know this man you are talking about. At that moment, the cock crowed for the second time. Then Peter remembered that Jesus had said to him, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. I wonder what would have happened if Peter hadn't denied Jesus in that moment. We don't know. Would he have been hauled by the high priest and the, the servants and forced to be crucified along with Jesus? I don't know. Perhaps would the people in that courtroom, would they have had an opportunity to hear about who Jesus truly was and would there have been hearts and lives that were changed in that moment because of Peter's bravery to speak about who Jesus is? I don't know. We won't know. Sometimes we're too scared to deny ourselves and we end up denying Jesus. Peter was ashamed of Jesus in that moment. But the beautiful good news to me this morning is that Jesus was not ashamed of Peter. Pastor Devo shared last week that after Jesus is resurrected, the angel tells the women to tell his disciples he's alive and specifically mentions, tell my disciples and don't forget Peter. Don't forget Peter. I'm not ashamed of him. Christian tradition tells us that Peter ends up dying on a Roman cross. Now, I don't personally know anyone who has lost their physical life for following Jesus. I don't know if there's anyone here who knows someone that has been killed or died because of their decision to follow in Jesus or follow in Jesus' way. When I was younger, this was a, that, this was a strong focus, and I was very scared about it. I was told about the time of trouble and that I was gonna have to stand up for my faith or be killed, I was gonna run to the mountains, I had dreams about torture and all these things as a young person. And I worried, would I stay true at the threat of death? If someone said, I'm gonna kill you unless you deny Jesus, what would I do? But guess what? When we spend so much energy being afraid of the future, we lose sight of the real opportunities to follow Jesus right now. We lose sight of brothers and sisters around the world who, guess what, that is their choice right now. We forget to pray for them because we're so worried about some potential time in the future that we might be in that situation. So, for you and me, what does setting self aside accepting stigma and following Jesus look like us today, look like for us today. As I've been wrestling with this question, I've thought about a few things. I think for me, it means re-examining the local and national policies and decisions that I support to make sure that it is really good for everyone. 
For me, it means speaking truth and standing up for someone who's being bullied or attacked or put down and not being afraid to say something. It means not being afraid to speak up about my own walk with Jesus, my experience with Jesus in a, in a conversation where I might be afraid or nervous to do that. It means not being defensive and maybe choosing to stay silent and listen in a difficult conversation, setting self aside. So today, I wanna invite all of us to decide again to follow Jesus. Whatever the physical or emotional cost you may need to pay, why? Because the cost of not doing so is so much greater. The cost of losing your core, your identity, your integrity is so much greater. There's an old song that was written 100 years ago. And I just learned the story behind this song now in preparing. It was written by an Indian missionary named Sundar Singh, lived 100 years ago. He found Christ. Uh, he went to a Christian school as a teenager. He lost his mother when he was 14. He came from a Hindu family. And when his mother died, he took the Bible apart page by page and burned it with his friends watching. But he went into a dark, deep depression. And again, about 15 or so, he really was felt compelled to suicide. He was so hopeless. And he prayed, he prayed, God, if you're there, if you're real, the true God, appear to me, show me who you are. And he saw a vision of Jesus. And from that point on, he, his, he decided to follow Jesus. He was only 16 years old. His father rejected him. He was tried to be poisoned by his brother. He was poisoned, tried, attempted poisoning multiple times. But he said, no, I'm going I'm to follow Jesus. He wore traditional in, uh, Indian Hindu holy person garb. And when he was 20, he went to the British uh, school for missionaries or for preachers, and, and they said that he needed to dress like an Anglican cleric. He needed to look British, in other words. And he said no. And so he left after eight months, and he stayed in his traditional uh, Hindu religious garb, preaching and teaching everywhere he went about Jesus. There was a, uh, an Indian man that was martyred with his family because of following Jesus, and some of the last words that he said were, I have decided to follow Jesus. And Singh took those words and put it to an Indian song, Indian melody, and I learned it as a young child. I wonder if some of you learned it, and if you would sing it with me here today. It goes like this. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, 
cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back.